Good morning. So I didn't know until I got married that there was such a thing as two-sided mirrors where one side is like really magnified and one side is just normal. How many knew about these? Yeah, I was the only one who didn't, all right? And when I found out about them, the thing that occurred to me was I never want to see my face that close up. I just have no desire for it, no need for it. But I did learn that there are some things that cannot be accomplished without a good, close look. Sometimes getting ready for the day, for some of us, involves a little bit more detailed look in the mirror, right? Yeah, absolutely. So some things you just don't know, you can't know, until you get a really good, up-close view of them. That's exactly what John is gonna give us today as we look at what it means to be a child of God. Now, that's language that gets used a lot in church, but probably... Often, we hear it and then we think, maybe we understand some aspects of it, but what John wants to give us today is the gift of helping us really look at it really, really up close. What does it mean to be a child of God? And in particular, how do you take up that identity so that you are putting away sin, so that you're, you're walking in righteousness? That's gonna be what he's going to suggest today. He's gonna say, if you really want to walk in the way that you should walk, in a way that pleases God. If you want your life to look like that, you need to know how to leverage and take up your identity as a child of God through Christ. That's what he is going to offer us today. And so we're gonna take a really good up-close look. We're gonna have to really get our brains clicking today because there's some detailed stuff that we're gonna work our way through. So will you go with me on the journey, yes? All right, awesome, fantastic. So. Let's read together. First John, we've been in the study of First John, and I told you guys in advance, it's gonna be repetitive. So you remember, he's talking to these folks because he wants them to have confidence that they know Christ. That's what he's, I want you to be totally confident of that. So he keeps returning to these three things over and over when it comes to their source of confidence, right? He wants them to know that they can have confidence if they believe the truth about Jesus, if they, uh, if they then also love one another, and if they do what is right. So he's returning to this doing what's right, living a life that is pleasing to God. And throughout the book, he's given us different tools, different ways that we can grow in doing what is right. And this, maybe above all of them, not that you necessarily rank them, but this one probably sits underneath or above, however you wanna think about it, all the others, because it's it's a piece of identity, not so much a piece of um, knowledge or information to take in, It's an identity to be lived out of. And as you do that, then you begin to overcome sin and put away sin and walk in righteousness. That's what he wants to offer us today. So let's read it together, starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and then we're gonna go all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. And so just follow along. He's not gonna mince words. And I'm gonna comment, because I'm gonna focus on only a few of these verses in most of our explanation, but I'm gonna comment as I work through this, okay? So I'm gonna interrupt the reading a little bit, because I wanna make sure we're following the flow of the text here. So beginning in verse 28, chapter two, he says, and now little children, his affectionate term for them, abide in him or remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So that may be a new idea that that something might actually, when Jesus returns one day, as the scriptures teach us he's going to, that there would be possible cause among the saints, among the believers, those who, who are Jesus's, to possibly shrink in shame. What would that be? And he says, I don't want that to happen. So he says, if you know that he is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So there's our first hint at being born of God or being born of Christ, being a child of God. And what he's saying essentially is, I don't want you to be living in such a way that your life is so marked by sin that when Jesus comes back, you would recognize so much of your life does not align with what he would want you to be doing. He wants you to be living in such a way that when Jesus returns, you would go, man, the Lord will be pleased with the choices I'm making, with the life I'm living. And so that's what he's suggesting here. Now, look at where he goes next, because you might think he would go to uh, advice or counsel or even, even some, some firm words about, well, stop doing this or stop doing that. That's not where he goes. Look what he does in verse one now. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And then as if to emphasize what he just said, he says, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, meaning Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see the argument there. If you know you're a child of God, you will walk in purity. You will want to walk in righteousness. That's what is the marker or the evidence of being a child of God, at least one of them. And then he's gonna really now, as, as explicit as he is about your identity, if you're in Christ as a child of God, now he's gonna talk in no uncertain terms about the challenge of, of not taking up that identity. And then he says in verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, just a word of clarification there. He's not actually referring to the Old Testament law. That may be what it appears like at first, where he's kind of going, oh, you're breaking the Old Testament law. Actually, he's referring to the passage we just looked at last week about the Antichrist, and how the Antichrist is against all the purposes of God. And so when he says, if you're sinning, you're being lawless, he's basically saying you're identifying with the enemy of God. You're living like you're following the enemy of God rather than living like you're following God. That's what he's referencing there. Verse five, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, praise God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And now verse 10 is gonna summarize kind of the whole argument beginning in verse four there. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, now the second I read that, you should probably feel some weightiness, yes? I mean, he's using terms like children of the devil and children of God and differentiating between the two, and he's talking about not making a practice of sinning, and if any of us are honest, we recognize, yeah, I have some habits of sin, 
that I, I am continuing to struggle with. And so we have to do a little clarification here. Let's make sure we hold intention, and particularly for those of you who haven't been with us throughout this study, let's remember in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, what John told us, anyone who says they don't sin is lying. Do we remember this? So we've already been told that. So as we come to this text now, what John can't mean is if I ever commit a sin, then I am not a child of God. I have to live a perfect life in order to prove that I'm a child of God. That can't be what he means unless he's just completely lost it somewhere between chapter one and chapter three. But that hasn't happened. And so as he's writing, again, here's the tension. He is very serious about the children of God living in righteous ways. We cannot let go of that. We have to hold on to that. That's the command and what he's pursuing here. But also, let's make sure we hold that with chapter one, verse eight. And what he's essentially saying is, if you find that your life is so marked by love of sin and habitual practice of sin and going back to sin and loving it and cherishing it more than you cherish God and his ways, I don't want you to have the confidence that you are in Christ and a child of God if that is going on in your life. He's not saying you never sin when you're a child of God. He's saying a child of God fights against their sin, does not make a habitual practice of it and delight in it. Does that make sense? So we wanna hold those things in tension because we don't wanna just dismiss what he's saying here as if there shouldn't be some real disdain towards sin. And by the way, victory in overcoming it bit by bit throughout our lives, that process of sanctification. So now, he gives us in the very middle of this text, which is we're gonna focus our time, this identity of being a child of God and if he's saying the evidence of being a child of God is that you practice righteousness because Jesus is righteous, that's his argument. If that's true then, he's not just saying it's the evidence, he's also saying it's the means by which we practice righteousness. If my being a child of God is proved out by my doing righteous things, living in right ways, then what is it, why can it be the proof? Because the, ch the status is what's producing the righteousness, does that make sense? So that's what he's suggesting. So what he's giving us then is a real gift. And you remember in chapter two, verses three through 11, he gave us some really wonderful tools to again, help us fight against our sin. He gave us, he said, the commands of God are there. They're at your disposal to help you fight against your sin. And he said, the fact that you've been saved by grace through faith and you don't have to earn your salvation, that's there to help you fight against your sin. He said, we have the example of Jesus in his life. That's given to us to help us fight against our sin. And he said this really radically powerful thing. He says when Jesus came, he ushered in a kingdom of light that is now spreading everywhere all the time. And you now are subjects of that kingdom of light. And so there's the ability to know God and to walk in his light. He's saying it's a whole new era that's come into the world when Jesus came. Everything has been fundamentally changed by the presence of Jesus in the world. Isn't that incredible? Jesus shifted the earth on its axis. He changed everything about what was happening in the world and he ushered in a new era, a new kingdom that we now get to live inside of. It's amazing. So all of that he's already said and now he comes to this idea of being children of God and he's saying, I wanna give you this and I want you to learn to put this identity on because it's one thing to say I'm a child of God. It's another thing to know how to put that identity on. Would you agree with that? And so what he wants to help you do today is to put on that identity, not just talk about it, not just say, yes, I know it here, that this is true, 
but actually I comprehend it and pragmatically, I'm gonna try and give you some practical things that you can do day by day to walk in that identity that you have as God's child. So three things we're gonna see here. Children are loved. Children abide and see. I'll explain what I mean by that. They abide and see, or you can say abide and behold. And children are confident. Those are the three things that we see here and we'll sort of walk through each one. So let's start with the first one. Children are loved. So here's what I want you to understand, friends. The most fundamental thing about you, if you're in Christ, if you belong to God because you have placed your faith in Jesus, there is nothing more true about you than that you are a child of God. There is nothing more true about you. I just want that to sink in for a second. The most fundamentally true thing about you is not your physical appearance. It's not your family of origin. It's not what you do for a living. It's not the character traits you possess or even the spiritual gifts that you've been given by God. It's not the call on his life, on your life that he's given you to serve him the way that you serve his kingdom. None of those things are the most fundamentally true thing about you. The most fundamentally true thing about you is that God has made you his son or daughter. You belong to him. And believing that and understanding that identity is absolutely crucial. So when John says in verse one, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, he is commenting on what has brought that identity about in your life. You are the child of God, a child of God through Christ, because God has freely chosen to love you. The source of it is not your goodness or your winsomeness. There was no point at which God turned and looked at you and said, you know, I really kind of like them. I think, I'll, I think I'll choose them. There was nothing compelling about us that caused God to choose it's what we just sang about all together, but it was freely given. And I want you to understand how crucial that is to believe that God freely chose to give his love and that that love is of such a quality and type that it didn't just make you able to be his servant and it didn't just make you able to be his friend, it made you able to be his child. And I want you to understand how radical that is because there is nothing like that really in all the world. If we have children and they're naturally born, we don't choose them, and God is saying, I chose you freely from my love. Adoption is a theological term, and we have adoption in the world, and it mirrors that theological term because it is God's choice to cause us to be the object of his love. And it was freely given. It wasn't required of him to give that love. Would it have been loving of God to say, here are these people in utter rebellion against me, that want to exalt their autonomy, they're walking in pride, they want to determine their own path and their own way, and I want to pour my love out upon them because I've determined to freely do so, not because of anything in them, but because of what I choose to do for my glory and in my delight, and in doing that, now, I'm going to make them my servants. Would that have been an act of amazing grace had he done that? Yeah. To be called out of being an enemy of God into being a servant of God is absolutely, hey, I'm on the right team now. Praise God for that, but he didn't stop there. His love was of such a quality and type that he didn't say, I'm gonna make you just my servants. I'm gonna make you just my friends. It was such a quality and type. That's what John is saying. Behold what kind of love 
The NIV says that the Father has lavished upon us. ESV here says given to us. And they say given because they want you to understand the free choice of it in him. God is not ever forced to do anything. Do you know that? No one can ever require anything of God. No one can ever say, you must do this. I hold you hostage to this. God is a free moral agent, we say, which means that he is able to always do everything that he deems to be right and good, and in that complete moral freedom, he determined to set his love on you and make you his child. The shift from chapter two to chapter three is meant to be like a record scratch moment in the book where you hear this, don't walk in such a way that you'll be ashamed when Jesus comes back and you're thinking, oh gosh, all right. Here, and you're thinking what's gonna come next is, is instruction or perhaps even like harsh correction. And what comes is this radical declaration of love. It's unbelievable. You are so loved that he is determined to make you his child. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, do you see how this helps you overcome temptations to sin? So all this is about walking in righteousness, taking up our identity as a child of God to walk in righteousness. Well, here's, you know, again, what might already be very obvious to you, let me just say and declare clearly, here's how that helps us overcome sin and temptation. We move towards sin often because we're trying to fill up a void and if that void's already filled by the love of God, then there is no need to fill it up with anything else. You don't sin, and neither do I, out of duty. I have yet to find the person who goes, I'm sinning because I have to. We sin because we want to, because our desires compel us in a certain direction, because our longings in our flesh move us towards certain things that aren't right or good, they don't help us, they're not healthy, but we sin out of not duty, desire. And so how does God counteract that? He fills up our desires in the opposite direction. And he says, I will set my love upon you so that there is no need for you to, to try to fill that void with anything else. That's why he's so intent upon teaching us to take up this identity that we have as children of God. Because if you learn to receive the love of God, now, the next thing we're talking about is returning that love, but the first part is receiving that love. So if you understand how to receive the amazing love that has made you God's child and to take it up, then you will not be pursuing all these lesser loves. You won't be trying to fill up your identity, trying to find your purpose from some other person from some other lesser love, from some other accomplishment, from money or from power or from prestige or whatever it may be, those things lose their luster when you find your identity in the love of God. That's why the love being the root of being the child is the key. So if that's true, if being loved by God is among the most important things we can take up then to put down sin, how do we do that? So I have conversations pretty regularly where there's this sense of like, I know, I mean, if I've read my Bible, I can't escape the idea that God loves me, but I'm not sure how to get, I believe that here, I'm not sure how to get it here. Have you felt that? Like, I, I get it here, I don't know how to get it here, right? And so let me give a couple of just, I think, helpful, practical 
ways of doing that because that's how we take up our identity as God's children, right? So the first, the first is, I'm, I mean, it's gonna just blow your mind. You ready for this? Pray. Well, here's what I mean, and I, you know, trying to be funny, but I truly, listen, now, it's a work of the Spirit of God for you to believe that you're loved by God. No amount of a pastor standing in front of you, no amount of a parent or a friend saying to you, God loves 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 you, is ultimately going to crack the code until the Spirit of God does a work in your heart and convinces you that you are loved by God and you sense the quality of that love so that all the other loves are they so pale in comparison that you now see them for what they are. So pray. Ask God, I mean, pray specifically, help me to believe that you love me. I have this conversation a decent bit, and I find that we, when I ask that question, we haven't done that very much. And it's because when we don't feel it here, it becomes hard to, it becomes hard to ask for it. And I get that, but I want to tell you, you need to press in and keep asking God to reveal to you his love. You're already praying something that's aligned with his will because he's declared his love for you in the person of Christ. And in declaring that, it is right and good that we would take up the prayer to say, help me to believe that here and here. Help me to comprehend it. Now, so that's one thing. The second thing I wanna suggest to you is take stock of where you begin in this journey. I do think often it is right and good that we would subjectively feel the love of God and experience it as an experiential thing that hits our emotions very deeply, but it's also true that we must experience it as an objective reality rooted in truth and that pierces our mind as well. And I often find that we have to begin with the objective and work towards the subjective. And what I mean by that is I cannot get that from my mind into my heart as a feeling just by telling myself to feel a certain way. Has anyone ever told you that you should feel a certain way and you think, well, thanks a lot, that does not help. This is how you should feel about this. Oh, okay, wonderful, thank you. That didn't help at all. But our minds and hearts are not separate from one another. We are one whole person made by God, designed with an intellect and a mind, as well as with a heart and emotions, and God sanctifies both those things, by the way. He sanctifies your emotions, he changes them and shapes them, and he changes and shapes your mind. And often, I find that God works from the objective to the subjective. So, one of the things to remember then and to go back to is the objective, the objective, concrete realities of God's love. Now, sometimes I think we do get messed up when we define love primarily as emotion and feeling more than concrete action. And when that happens sometimes, then it becomes difficult to actually feel the emotion connected to God's love. But if we understand love as both a concrete reality rooted in objective actions, the commitment of his will to our best interests at great cost to himself, when we understand love as that, as well as the subjective, then we can begin with the objective and watch it produce the subjective. So in other words, we go back to the cross again and again as the great objective reality displaying God's love. We remember what he said in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that he showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
that that cross is the great demonstration of his love. And friends, I'll just encourage you, you hear about the cross every week here, I know that, don't grow weary of that. Don't grow weary of hearing about the cross. Just imagine if you're God and your people gather and we declare the cross and we say, man, and, and we're kind of bored with it. If you're God who sent his son into the world to suffer and die for sin and then rise again victorious, might you find if your people got bored with that that you were displeased with your boredom about that? Imagine if it was your child and you sacrificed the life of your child for someone and then that person two years, five years, 10 years later said, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? I'm not all that interested in hearing about the sacrifice of your child any longer for me as the demonstration of your love for me. You might not care for that line of thinking, yes? So go back to the cross again as the objective reality of God's love given for you. Listen, Romans 8, 32 said he, says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see he's saying that the cross is the evidence of my love for you? The cross is the evidence of my love. The cross, the cross, the cross. Go back to it again. When you struggle to believe that I love you, go back to the cross and remember a God who didn't love me wouldn't have done that. If he didn't love me, and here's the challenge, you're gonna encounter deeply difficult circumstances and moments where you feel very alone and God feels very silent and you're gonna think, where are you? And the Psalms are full of psalmists crying out, God, how long? God, where have you gone? The unjust are, seem to be ruling and reigning. What is going on? Where are you and what are you doing? And in our scenario now, on this side of the cross, we have what the psalmist never had, where the psalmist has to say, where are you and what are you gonna do? And look forward to a rescue still to come, a rescuer still to come. And we now look back at a rescuer who has come and a work that has been done and is finished and complete. There is nothing left for him to do. And so in our dark nights of the soul, we go back to the cross and we cling to it. And we say, this is your love. This is your love. And I don't need anything else. I don't need you to bring some certain blessing into my life. I don't need you to rescue me in a certain timeline from the difficult circumstances of my life. I don't even need you to give me one more day, two more days, 10 more days. If today is the last day, you are still good and you are still great because you have sent your son. He has paid the penalty of my sin and the cross is the declaration of your love. Do you see what I mean when you start with the objective and watch it work its way into your heart? But don't get weary of working that way. Just even in this text alone, all right, I won't even, I won't even go to all the different places we could go. Think about the objective realities of God's love declared just in this one verse. We are told objectively in this verse that his love is a claiming love, that he says, I want you, I claim you. We have been called children of God. Did you catch that word? I call you mine. I claim you. That's an objective reality of his love. It's a naming love. I call you, not just I call you to myself, I call you my child. I give you the family name and all that comes with that. 
I make you an heir. I give you an inheritance. I give you a future hope. I give you everything that a child receives from a parent. It's yours because I have not just claimed you, but I have named you as well. And then the last thing we see in this verse is that we already said it's freely given. It's not based upon your performance. You cannot lose it because you did not earn it. Therefore, it's given based upon his free choice to give it. So the first reality of taking up our identity as children of God is receiving love from God. It's how you take it up. And we begin with prayer and we begin with moving from the objective to the subjective. Now let's go to the second thing. And this is, we're kind of gonna get into the weeds a little bit here, okay? So this is, weeds is the wrong analogy. These aren't weeds, all right? But they're good details, all right? So the next thing children do is they abide and they see. Okay, so we saw in verse 28 and verse six, he said, abide, abide in God or abide in Christ. And that just means remain. But I don't just want you to hear that as a command. I want you to see it as an invitation because every time we see that, like in John 15, when Jesus talks about abiding in the Father and abiding in the Son, he's not just saying, you must do this. He's saying, I invite you to do this. In other words, as a child of God, one of the privileges you have is that you can be with God. He wants you to come. He invites you in. And you can drop in, Amanda and I, we always uh, kind of joke, we go back and forth. Like, I'm the kind of person that like, if I'm gonna go see a friend, I'm just like, I'll just pop, out, I'll just pop in. And Amanda's like, we probably ought to text first, right? How many of you are pop-inners? How many of you are text firsters? Okay, awesome. Guess what? In this scenario, the pop-inners are right. I'm not saying in your neighborhood, go ahead, send that text. That's probably wise. But in this scenario, when God is saying abide, abide in me as a child, what he's saying is you have the invitation that's always available to you to just come and be with me. I invite you. I delight to have you around. I'm happy about the pop-in. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm so inconvenienced. Now I've got to bake some chocolate chip cookies so we have a snack to have. He's, he's just delighting to have you around. But then here's what, the, here's what brings about then the actual transformation where we put away sin. Because it's not just that we're invited to go be with God, it's what happens when we're with him. So we've talked about receiving his love. Now we're gonna talk about returning that love to him. Look at what verse two says. And this is where you really gotta follow. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because, now get this, because we shall see him as he is. Now here's the interesting thing. He's talking about the return of Jesus. Jesus is gonna come back one day. And when he does, he says, when we see him, we will be like him. Now that's pretty amazing, yes? That's talking about the day that we're gonna be made completely new and we're gonna be like the Lord and sin's gonna be put away. It's gonna be amazing. And so the question that comes to mind, though, for me, is I've pondered this a lot, is to say, what is the connection between seeing Jesus and becoming like him? Like, what is it about seeing him in that moment that's gonna make me fully like him? I mean, is this some kind of magic act or something? Is this like a, you know, I mean, I'm looking at you, I don't become like you, right? Same with you, like, I look at things all the time, I don't become like them, so what is it about seeing Jesus that makes us like Jesus. And then you might think, well, okay, maybe it's where we are on the timeline. 
Because this is talking about when Jesus returns. And so maybe it's not so much about seeing him as it is, this is just the point at which in God's redemptive plan that he's gonna choose to, to renew everybody, to glorify people. And okay, so that, it's just where we are in the timeline. But that's not what the text says, is it? It doesn't say he's gonna return, therefore we'll be like him. It says he's gonna return and we will see him, therefore we will be like him. So there's something in the seeing. So that takes us then a little further down the road and we have to go, okay, well, so if that's what changes me, it ultimately is gonna bring about the final change. Is there something to that now? Is there something about seeing him now? And if so, how do I do that? How do I see him to be transformed? Are we following so far, yes? Okay, and that's where 2 Corinthians chapter three Verse 17 and 18 comes in. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over there with me just quickly. And I wanna show you this because this tells us it's not just the point on the timeline. There is something else going on here. So just to summarize uh, what Paul is arguing, he's saying, man, back in the Old Testament, under the old covenant that God made with Israel, Moses received the 10 commandments and the reception of that covenant was so glorious and so amazing that Moses' face shined with the glory of God. So that when he went down the mountain, he had to put on a veil. The people were like, we can't look at you. Not only can we not look at God and his holiness or else we would die, that's what Exodus 33 says. No one can see God and live. His purity and holiness is too great and we are too sinful to look upon him. And so that Exodus 33 reality, Moses didn't see God, he saw the backside of God got a glimpse of God, and that alone was so glorious. And when he came down the mountain, all the people were like, please cover your face up. And so Paul's using all that, and he's saying, now here's what's happened in Jesus. The veil between you and the glory of God has been taken away. Not just the veil between you and another person who happened to see some part of God, the veil between you and God himself has been taken away by Jesus so that you can look upon God. You can see him. Now, watch how he are. You start at verse 17 with me. Actually, start at verse 16. And here's what he says. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now, here's what he's just said. The freedom he's talking about is not freedom, sort of like psychological freedom, from shame or guilt. He's not talking about freedom of kind of choice. He's talking about the freedom to see God. That's the freedom there. And when he says where the spirit of the Lord is, that's where that freedom is. What he's saying is the way you see God now, the way the veil has been removed, is that his spirit resides in you, Corinthians. And because his spirit resides in you, you now behold him. You now see him in a way Moses never did, in a way the people of Israel never did. Jesus has made you see God and his spirit is in you making that possible. Everybody following so far? All right, so watch now, then verse 18, it's radical. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you see how seeing is changing? Yeah, same as in 1 John, right? Something about the seeing creates the change. And he says, you're being changed from one degree of glory, the glory of an image bearer of God. Every single person is an image bearer of God and beholds, declares, and shows something of his glory. From that kind of glory to the glory of a sanctified saint, to someone like Jesus. And then he says, 
from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, now let me bring all that together, okay? So he's arguing, seeing is transforming. Second Corinthians chapter three tells us it's not just at the end, it's happening now. This is a now reality, okay? Second Corinthians 3.18 is saying, because the Spirit's in you, you are beholding God now with the veil removed. So what is it then about beholding that transforms? It's not just that I have a vision of God, and it's not just that his Spirit lives in me. I think two things are taking place that cause the, the actual beholding. And it's this, the presumption that Paul is making is your ability to see God now, to have direct contact with him through Christ causes two things. It causes you to, in that seeing his goodness, the assumption is you will affirm everything you see. I see you and everything I see is good. Everything I see is right. Everything I see is beautiful. And my affection, because of my affirmation, my affection for you now is second to none. My affection grows. So here's what Paul is saying. Beholding changes us, helps us put away sin and become righteous and walk in righteousness. Beholding changes us because beholding is turning our affection on him and we become like what we love. You will always become more like the thing you love. And so what God has done in Christ is make you able to be with him abide with him and see him so that you would affirm all that he is and have your affection grow towards him, not through some intermediary, not through some just idea about him, but he literally gives you access to him through his spirit so that as you engage with this spirit, you are affirming and, aff and having your affections grown. And as you do, now your response to God's love that was set upon you in being his child, now being his child makes you return that love. And as you return that love through your affirmation and affection, you are changed to be like him. Now, I know that's a lot of detail, okay? But here's what that boils down to. It means everything we do, everything we do, every spiritual discipline, every day getting up and reading my Bible, every act of service, every use of my spiritual gifts, every time I go to a life group and learn to live in fellowship with the saints and confess my sins and bear with one another, every bit of it has to be leveraged as a child of God to both affirm all that God is. What I affirm matters. You know that, yes? What you call good will shape you. If you call evil good, you will be shaped for evil. If you call good, good, you'll be shaped for good. And your affection for the thing that you affirm will grow. And so as you have, you now have as a child of God, access to God himself so that you can keep affirming and growing in affection. And that changes you. So I know that's very detailed, okay? But I need you to see that's what the text is getting at. And now let's do our, let's just do our last piece, okay? I can see the, Everybody's brain, it looks like smoke is coming out. Not that it's like all that hard necessarily, but I just, I don't know. Sometimes I look at your faces and go, hmm, okay, let's keep going. Do you know how much I enjoy getting to do this with you? I just love you guys. I love studying God's word with you, and I think you're pretty remarkable. All right, so then the last thing, the last thing, okay, that's why I go over all the time. I enjoy it too much. All right, 
Children are confident. So what did he say at the end of verse one? This is the last thing we're gonna look at, okay? At the end of verse one, he said, the world doesn't know you because it didn't know him. Now, why did he say that? After saying you're God's children and that's what you are, I mean, that definitive statement, and he says, now the world doesn't know you because it didn't know him. Why? I mean, why that statement right there? Because you could leave it out and go right to verse two, and it would just make perfect sense. It would be like, yeah, let's talk about the day he comes back, and we're fully like living in that you know, final adoption, right? But he does that because, again, he's trying to get them to live righteous lives. And what he knows is one of the things that could lead them astray is seeking the approval of the world. If they seek the approval of the world, they're gonna be tempted to move in ways that the world loves, but God does not love. And so what he's saying is, you can't seek the approval of the world. As followers of Jesus, you have to get rid of any notion that you need the approval of the world. Now, that's not to say you can't be successful in the world. It's not to say the world won't at points say, I love this thing about you. I mean, there are people who are moral people all over the world that will affirm good moral things, all right? But at the end of the day, a believer never rises or falls with the approval they receive or don't receive from the world. It cannot be the thing we hunger for. We cannot pursue it. Daniel's a great example, isn't he, in the Old Testament? Remember the story of Daniel? Right, he's taken captive to Babylon, and he excels in all their studies. He studies their religion, their astrology, all their subject matter, their history, and he, goes, he does it better than anybody else. And he rises to the level of basically like the first guy in the kingdom behind the king. I mean, the level of success is astronomical. It's, it's especially for someone who was taken as a slave there. It's amazing. But then there's always that lion's den moment because there comes this moment where in order to get the approval of the king and the approval of the world he's living in, Daniel would have to worship someone who wasn't God. And he determines that he won't do it. And it sends him out of the palace prestige and into the den of lions. But God is faithful and he delivers them. Friends, there will, there will always be a lion's den moment. There will always be a moment where to get the approval of the world, something will be asked of you that you cannot do and remain faithful to God. And that's what John is writing about. He's concerned about it. He's saying, look, don't seek the approval of the world. You won't get it. The world didn't recognize Jesus, didn't know Jesus, didn't love Jesus, and they're not going to recognize or know or love you either. Maybe for a little while, but ultimately there will always come a moment. And so he's trying to warn them against that. Don't seek the approval of the world. Now, why did I say then children are confident rather than children don't seek the approval of the world? Because here's what he's giving you as a child of God. He's saying you can be confident that I approve of you that I delight in you. When, you. when you walk in righteousness, I say, well done, good and faithful servant, well done. And so we learn to seek the approval of the Lord and that gives us confidence. That's what gives us confidence. I found this to be true, and again, it's not, this is not necessarily true of every single person, but it seems like a theme. When I talk with believers about their prayer lives, that early on in our prayer lives, especially when we kind of first come to faith, our prayer lives are often marked kind of by making requests of God, right? Like telling him our needs and kind of getting directions from God. We, we seem to spend a lot of time in those two areas of prayer. It's like, what, and that's, those are good things. God, what do you want me to do? We kind of think he's gonna give me some assignments and God, here's what I need. And both of those things you should do. 
Those are good things to do, right? But as we then kind of grow in our prayer lives, the, we, we tend to both still have those things, but there's this sort of element of worship that comes into our prayer lives and thanksgiving where we find ourselves, I just wanna come here and tell you how great you are. I just wanna tell you how wonderful you are. I wanna worship you. I wanna give thanks to you. And that kind of starts to bolster our prayer lives uh, a bit. But often I find even when we're there, there's another element to our prayer lives that is, seems to be hard for us to kind of grasp. Like we, we may even get to where we're like receiving correction and feel like the Lord's redirecting us. But often what I find believers, children of God, have a hard time doing is hearing God say, well done. That there would be a part of your prayer life where you would actually hear God affirm you. I'm not talking about just affirming you for, you know, like for nothing, but that God would say, man, well done that you competed in that athletic event with integrity. I'm proud of you. Well done that you had that choice at work to lie or tell the truth and you told the truth. Well done. Well done that you served your family and were patient with your kids. I think, some, I, I think that can be one of the hardest parts of our prayer life to develop that God would actually say to us, I'm pleased with you. I adore you. I love you. And I'm pleased with you. Well done. Would you agree that can be hard to grasp? Them? But if we are his children, and children need affirmation, right? It's not wrong to believe that God would affirm us. Now, please don't say that God affirms you in some sinful choice. He doesn't, he'll correct you in that. But when you walk in righteousness, he absolutely affirms that and delights to tell you. He's not, with, he's not withholding God doesn't withhold affirmation. So how do we take that up then? Um, here's one thing I'll encourage you in. We need to affirm each other. When we see each other do what is right, we should be quick to say that was well done. Affirmation in the household of faith, of righteousness and goodness, helps us do it more and helps us hear God. We, we can be the voice of God in that way to one another when we affirm one another in our righteous choices and in our goodness. And that's right and good for us to do. But the other side is to develop that part of our prayer life. And I'll tell you this, and again, I tell you this just because um, I hope it helps you. I, I never share stuff about myself because I think it, I, I only share it because I hope it helps you. Um, one of the realities of being a pastor, Sunday afternoons can be a pretty low period. So I get done from this and it's, it's Sunday afternoons can be kind of tough. There's a lot of like, oh, I wish I'd said this or second guessing, or does that, did anybody even really make a difference at all? Sometimes it's battling lies. I think the enemy wants me to believe. Sometimes it's just, I just need good strategies. And, and every pastor I talk to, this is very common, okay? And I used to think as I got more mature and got you know, better maybe at being a pastor that it would stop. And I've learned that it's never gonna stop. It will just be this way forever. But we put tools in place, usually pastors are like, do something physical. We go for a run, or we, like, if you're a woodworker, you do that, or you do stuff that's like, all right, I'm gonna focus on something other than this, hang out with the kids, you know, shoot baskets, whatever. But here's what I found. More than anything, what I have to develop is at the end of the day, a prayer life where I can hear God say, I'm proud of you, well done. Because I don't just need, like, a woodworking project to distract myself. <laughs> You know, I'm not a woodworker. I don't know why I use that example. <laughs> I don't need to just go run to distract myself or to focus my energy or to get my, you know, kind of body, you know, get the blood pump and that kind of stuff. 
I need to hear God say, I love you and I'm pleased with you. And at the end of the day, if I brought God's word forth in my, in my very best of my ability, what I understood to be the truth of God's word, and I did it in love with him and in love with you, that I loved you and I loved him as I did it, then he'll correct me when I need to be corrected and say, hey, this, do this differently, you know, think this way. But at the end of the day, just like I'm saying to you, what I need is for, to know that God is pleased and can say, well done. I need to hear him say that. At the end of the day, that's really the only thing that matters is whether he says, well done. And it's the same for you. You need to hear God say, well done. You need to hear God say, well done. And because you're his child, he does. And so you don't have to seek the approval of the world. And you have the confidence taking that up. So let's affirm each other, yes, but let's also cultivate those prayer lives where we hear God saying, well done to us as we do what's right and good. Okay, you guys are awesome. Let's come to the table of the Lord. Servers, if you'd come, we come to the communion table. We do this each month. It's one of our practices, and if you're new with us, you are welcome to this table. We are glad to have you partake of these representations of the body and blood of Jesus. The one exception to that is if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've not placed your faith in him, if you belong to another church home, wonderful. Uh, if you're visiting us, wonderful. Please come to the table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're gonna invite and let the elements pass. And the reason for that, we say this every time, is because we don't want you to proclaim with your actions what you don't believe in your heart and in your mind. We really want you to, to walk in that integrity. So uh, we'll just encourage you in that way to let these elements pass. Now, all who are followers of Jesus, as we partake of these elements, what we are declaring is we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the Son of God, as payment for our sins, and now as the way by which we've been reconciled to God. So within what he commands of us as we partake them, we say, Lord, what part of my life do you wanna redirect? What do you want to, to correct or to speak to me? And perhaps today it might even be an affirmation that he would offer. But we hold ourselves open before him as we come to the elements as a reminder of the cross and the work of the cross and payment for our sin so that we would go forward in righteousness as we were hearing John declare to us today. So servers, if you come, and then we'll take all the elements together here in a moment.